get to that, I just want to say, um, I know Jose said, visitors, you came to write today, today's chili cook-off, but I just want to let, if this is your first time, I just want you to let you know, next week is steak cook-off, and then the following week is chicken cordon bleu cook-off. So we do this every week, so you're probably going to want to come back. i just just not trying to trick you or anything. Even I feel dumb about myself sometimes. My, my family cringes when I say things like this, but even I sometimes think of that. Um, you know, as we look at the book of Esther, one of the things you know, I'm thinking about, because this is we've, the first two chapters we talked about this some in this chapter, we've got to think about this all through, that we, also that we all go through these twists and turns in life, you know, and, and we, can, we can be suckers for this sometimes, you know. Uh, at one point, maybe things are looking up. Maybe, maybe an exam went well, or you got a job interview you really wanted to get, or a doctor's appointment went well, or you got a promotion at work, and you're like, thank you, God, praise God. You know, things are going so well, and things are optimistic, and things are hopeful. And then circumstances change. Maybe a project you're working on doesn't go well. Maybe you got that interview, and you thought it went well, but they didn't hire you. Maybe you went to the doctor, and you got a bad medical report. Maybe you're at work, and you're getting opposition. You're getting flack from a coworker. Maybe you've lost a friend over a misunderstanding. Maybe there's a problem within your family where there's heartache and there's pain. And suddenly, you know, you, the circumstance, everything goes 180 degrees. You start going, well, where's God in this? Does he care? Or, I mean, is this just bad luck? How do we deal with these negative circumstances? Now, we've said, we've talked about this the previous two times, that we believe God is working even when bad things happen. And the theme of this book of Esther is God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them. So we have to understand with what's going on in this book and what this theme is, is it tells us something. It tells us that God works through people. Sometimes God uses his people to accomplish his goals. And we have this book of Esther. It's an incredibly unique book in the Bible. I mean, think about it. It, the, The name of God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. And somehow it made it in there. God's not mentioned. And yet we see through all of this that God is working, God is delivering his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them. All right? So quick review. Chapter 1, we have King Xerxes, uh, an incredibly powerful king, largest, the largest kingdom in the world at that time, the largest, uh, the greatest ruler in the world at that time. And he has this banquet. And there's a lot of drinking going on in this banquet. And we, we, we kind of perceive through the course of this book that King Xerxes is a guy that doesn't always have his act together. And uh, so he drinks a little too much, and his buddies drink a little too much. And he says, hey, let me get my wife out here to dance for you guys because she is a knockout. You know? and, and it's pretty much understood by most commentators that he told her to come out in her beautiful crown and nothing else. Right? And so she says no. And so he flies into a rage. And you're going to notice a theme in this book also is men losing it. Men flying into rages. So he gets his advisors together and they come up with a really dumb decree. And, uh, and he is manipulated. He's easily swayed and he makes that decree. Now understand in the Persian Empire, if the king makes a decree, it can never be rescinded, even if the king wants to rescind it. It cannot be rescinded. That's Persian law. 
So he makes a decree. He's never going to see her again. She can never come into his presence again. And also he makes a decree to save the nation from all these crazy women. They're going to rise up against their husband. He makes a rule that all the women have to be submissive to their husband, just in case Vashti, you know, gets around and poisons all the other women. Um, He evidently thought a lot of her because he was worried about her. So in chapter 2, we have years later. Okay, we have a number of years later. Xerxes, we know historically, has gone on a military campaign into Greece and got his butt handed to him. In the meantime, he made some big mistakes in that, which just helps us understand Xerxes more. He was a son who was handed the kingdom by his daddy, and he is not doing a great job. So he has this disastrous campaign. It says he remembers her. It's this idea of he remembers Vashti fondly, but he can't see her because he made that decree. He seems to regret it but it can't, can't be changed. So they began, his buds get together, and they, just, they start a new search for a new queen based on exploitation. We don't have to go into all that. Esther is, is chosen, taken is the operative word there, uh, against her will. And then later in the chapter, we see Esther's uncle Mordecai. And he works, he, he's a bureaucrat. He works for the king. And he hears a rumor of a plot, and he identifies the two people who are involved in this plot to overthrow the king, probably because the king's an idiot, and they're trying to get somebody better in in power. And he reports it, and those two men are captured and killed. But very interestingly, because this goes against everything we know about Xerxes or any king of that time, there's no mention of a reward or recognition for Mordecai. It seems the king has forgotten about this. He just kind of overlooked it. And so now we get to chapter 3. And now we're here, we're here and we're going to kind of go through this. Uh, just two major points. I want you to see there's anger that is fueled by pride. And this is in verses 1 through 6. And here is verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So we have, first of all, that this man Haman has been honored. Now, we don't exactly know what the background of this is. We do know this. This is now a number of years later, because they're going to give us some dates in a little bit, and when you work out those dates, that's, that's what's going on. We don't know why, but we do know this. You're going to read as you come across this. Haman is just this immature idiot. Uh, this dude, and how did he get promoted? How did he? Because a lot of, a lot of uh, people, when they read about this and they think about it, they say, how did this guy get promoted? Because he, he comes off as, as not, a, not a super clear thinker. Well, look who promoted him. See, that just, just look at Xerxes promoted him. Haman evidently knew how to get on the good side of Xerxes, and so he's put in charge, even though he is immature and impulsive because his boss is immature and impulsive and easily manipulated. And so he's elevated to what we would call prime minister. This is about five years after chapter two. So a lot of stuff's gone on. And so all the people, if you look at that, they all knelt down and paid honor except for Mordecai, except for Mordecai. He would not do it. Then the royal officials at King's, King's Gate asked Mordecai, all right, Mordecai works at the King's Gate. The King's Gate is not just a gate, it's a bureaucratic area where all these where laws are enforced and, 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 and all kinds of stuff goes on, and that's evidently where he works. But all the bigwigs come in and out of that gate, and he won't bow for Haman. The royal officials at the King's Gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? 
Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Right, now there's the operative thing. See this? Now we know, why won't Mordecai bow? Why won't Mordecai bow? And Mordecai, it says, I'm not because I'm a Jew. Because I'm a Jew. Now, what we have to do now is figure out what are the details that explain why this is important. If you go back into Esther chapter 2, it tells us, now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish. All right, so why would he put that in there about Mordecai? Well, it gives us some clues. First of all, he's a Benjamite. Now we know what tribe he's from. He gives a couple of the father's name. Now, this is a typical genealogy type deal. There, there may be a couple hundred years between some of these names. But the big one is the last one, the son of Kish. Now, we know who that's talking about because Kish was the father of Saul, the first king of Israel. All right? So, and that's the Kish this is referring to. And the reason why that's the Kish that this is referring to, because if it was some other Kish who wasn't quite as important, it would say the son of Kish who was blah, blah, blah. They'd identify. But when you just lay the name out there, it's going to the most important person you know of that name. That's how you know this. That's how these things work. So he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was the father also of Saul, the king. Tells us a little bit about him. All right, now, we also know with Haman, it tells us that Haman is an Agagite, the descendant of King Agag, who is an Amalekite. Now, we know from biblical history, there is this incredible enmity between Amalekites and the Jews. In the book of Exodus, when the Jews were first coming across the Red Sea and they were bedraggled and they were, they'd been running out of water and it, and it tells us they'd, they'd, they'd stretched in Deuteronomy, it describes it to more detail. The Amalekites, who were slavers, the Amalekites were predators and they would prey on people to take them into slavery and sell them. They looked for little band. So they see this long stretch of people, maybe a few hundred thousand people and who would straggle and they attacked from the rear and who would straggle at the back of a long caravan? Old people and children. And so they attacked what they knew was the weakest point and the Israelites then retaliated. They had a battle. And then this keeps going on and on. The Amalekites are portrayed as these people who are incredibly evil. Incredibly evil. Um, um, there is a, a large a, a sense of there's demonic stuff going on here. But now we begin to see why Mordecai won't bow. Because Haman is an Amalekite. And Mordecai says, I'll bow to a Persian. I'll bow to a Mede. I'll bow to a Babylonian. But not the Malachites. They hate us, and we hate them. And so we have now this idea of what is behind all of this. In fact, if you, the story continues, and if you get to King Saul, at one point God tells King Saul to get rid of the Amalekites forever. He says, I, they've counted up their sins. They've been this way for us for all these years. And Saul de deals this, them this terrible blow, but, but he disobeys the Lord in, in, in how he goes about it. But Saul is a name that Amalekites would all hate deeply. And Mordecai is in the line of Saul's father. 
So we have this hated man. Now, we can sit there and think about this and think, ah, that is, can't these people get... But you know what? This goes on now. This goes on all around us. You see people that hold grudges for years and years and years. You see people that hold enmity and bitterness for long periods of time. I mean, just an easy example of this is is the Sunni-Shia divide that is going on right now in the Muslim world. That goes all the way back to 680 A.D. 680 A.D. There was a battle and a massacre, and Shias and Sunnis have hated each other ever since. And that is... Part of, you know, like when you, we read about uh, Islamic terrorists killing other Muslims. It's almost always part of the Sunni-Shia hatred. Almost always. Because they're still fighting. Back in the 80s when we had the, the, the war in Bosnia, that hatred started a thousand years earlier. And it is still being played out now. And so what do we have? We have that kind of hatred. Mordecai will not bow, and that seems to be the reason. Now, we can debate whether or not this is a good thing for Mordecai to do or not to do, but the text doesn't tell us whether it's a good thing to do. It just says that's what he does, and that's that. So that's all we know. That's all we can deal with. Here's the interesting thing to me. The interesting thing is Haman didn't know or see that Mordecai was not bowing. When you look at this, it says, it says, day after day they spoke to him. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. See, Haman didn't notice it. He didn't notice it. I think this is something that can, we can think about too. You know, when you're full of yourself and you're full of your ego, one of the things you first stop noticing is those who you consider below you. You don't even notice them. They become part of the scenery. And something can happen, you might not even notice it for a long time. What happens? We, there's people we tend to just put out of our vision and not think about. One of the hardest things for me to do, I, okay, that's not true. A hard thing to do, it's not one of the hardest. A hard thing to do is for me, sometimes coming out of the Walmart on Jefferson Avenue, and there's always someone there with a sign. And I, typically, I don't give people money, uh, panhandlers money generally speaking because oftentimes that money gets used for the wrong thing it gets oftentimes it gets used for drugs and alcohol and and they can say it's for food but oftentimes it's not i mean sometimes it is and i don't want to judge all of them but i don't give money i'll give gift cards i'll give other things like that but i won't give money but one of the things i force myself to do every time i leave that walmart is to look at that person to see them to see them and understand here is a person who has gotten to such a state in their life that, that this is what they have to do to get by and to feel that. Because it's easy for us to ignore those people. Do you ever notice that when you're at the, somebody's, somebody's asking for money and they're walking along with a sign and you, you start looking at anything but them? You know, oh my, my <laughs> I'm, you don't listen to your radio, you don't even listen to it, but you're fiddling with the knobs. Why? So you don't have to look at them. I wanna look at them. I wanna look. I wanna see. This is another human being. This is a person who's created in the image of God. I cannot let them become part of the scenery and ignore them. Because as soon as I do that, I'm going down this road that Haman's on. It's like the story in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus sits at that man's door all that time. And then Lazarus dies. Then the rich man dies. 
And we have this scene, and it's just a scene, it's a story. But we see something very interesting. Even in death, the rich man treats Lazarus like he's his inferior. The rich man is in this terrible place. Lazarus is in this good place. The rich man wants some water. And what does he do? He says, Father Abraham, send your guy down to give me some water. Send him your servant. He's, he's saying he's still he's a servant. He's still beneath me. I don't, I'm not going to talk to him because I have a higher status than him. I think if God allowed it, Okay, this is just like a mad, sanctified imagination, okay? This is just me making stuff up. But I think if God allowed it, that some people in hell could see some people in heaven, there would be people in hell who say, well, I'm above that guy. I'm, I'm more important than he. Look at what I was in life. And this is what we see with this rich man in Lazarus. He still looks at him like he's a servant, like he's below him. Haman doesn't even notice. He doesn't even notice. Here's the other thing I think we can struggle with. Notice that Haman has all these people honoring him. Hundreds of people bowing. Maybe thousands of people bowing. But one person not bowing drives him crazy. You think about that. Think about that. All these people. Thousands of people are honoring you, Haman, but he's not. You ever notice how we do that? We can pick out the one bad thing. Things can be going well in our life. Yeah, there's a, you know, you think, count your blessings. You got this, 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 this. Yeah, but this is happening, and it's dominating me. That can happen to us so easily. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. This word enraged means, means something like, like, like a, a cup or a bowl, and you're pouring water into it, and you pour it till it hits the rim, and then you just keep pouring, and it's just flowing over. It's too much for the container to hold. He's full and overflowing with rage because one person won't honor him. He was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Okay, so now this is genocide he's looking for. This is what he wants to do. He wants to kill all these people. And we see this anger that is fueled with pride. We see this massive ego that's coupled with insecurity. And it's overflowing. The anger is just overflowing. So he goes to this extreme. Because, you know, you read that, you go like, dude, that's a little over the edge, right? One guy won't bow to you, and you say, we need to kill millions. But what's going on here? Remember the enmity between Amalekites and Jews. Amalekites have always wanted to destroy the Jews. And now he sees his chance. He has this incredible problem with his ego, with his pride. And it is easy for us to look at that and judge it. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this. He talks about how we can spot it in others, but we fail to see it in ourselves. And he starts asking these questions. He, in Mere Christianity, he writes a chapter on this. Like he writes, how, does it bother, how much does it bother me when others snub me? How much does that bother me? How much does it bother me when people don't notice me? How much does it bother me when people say, that's the guy that gives out gift cards to Starbucks? Right? How much does it bother me when people patronize me? 
Ladies, how much does it bother you when somebody mansplains? Right? How much does it bother me when people show off in front of me? I, uh, I played, I played uh, sports a lot and, um, in college, and, and then I coached um, soccer for quite a few years at the high school level and, and uh, did, did really well. And then my kids started playing soccer when they were little, and I would go to their games. And one time, I went to one of my daughter's games, and I'm sitting in the stands, and there's this guy sitting right here, and he's, he's saying... This coach has it all wrong. And I don't, already I'm like, dude, don't, don't, don't talk about the coach. Don't do that. I've been there. I know what it is when idiot parents think they know everything, right? This coach says, hey, what he needs to do is get my daughter up front. She'll, she'll score a lot of goals. I, I know a lot about this stuff because I played in high school. And I was like, oh, dude, oh, man, you're killing me now. It's just killing me. And, uh, and, and uh, so he starts talking about how this coach should coach these eight-year-olds, flipping eight-year-olds, right? And how they need to score goals because it's all about winning and blah, 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 blah. And I am dying to say, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, just, just, just throw up on him with it. You're an idiot. You're a jerk. You don't know what you're talking about. If you play in high school, it was a crap high school, I'll tell you. That. Blah, blah, blah. That's what I wanted to say. Okay, that's, I'm being honest. And I'm steaming, and the guy, he keeps looking at me. I don't know why he wants to talk to me, because I was not one. And he was just like, you know what I'm saying? You know what you've been doing? And I said, oh, I don't know, dude. I don't know. And my wife is sitting next to me, and I look, and she's just smiling. She's just smiling. And she goes, this is killing you, isn't it? And I said, yes, yes, it's killing me. I wish there was another bleacher. <laughs> I would move. I would move. And, I, and it just, it was, it was killing me. Why? Because I knew more than him. And so I didn't think I should have to listen to the twaddle he was putting out of his mouth, right? And what is that? That's pride. That's just my pride. Just knowing yeah, and, and, and I did know more than him. I mean, it's not like that was the issue. It was just the fact that it killed me to know more and not explain to him. Yeah, I got to get off of that one. That one, yeah, doesn't bother me anymore. You can tell, right? <laughs> but, but what happens? What happens? You know, C.S. Lewis talked about this. He talks about how pride creates competition with other people's pride. And if it is let go, it leads to anger. It was, it was for me. It was for me. It leads to anger and ultimately conflict. That's what happens when pride is unchecked. This is what's happening with Haman. This is what's happening with him. And we, we all have these times in our lives where we can struggle with this. And we see this. We see this anger. And here, here's the kicker. It's anger coupled with authority. That's a bad mix right there. It's a bad mix. If you can't control your anger and you're in a position of authority, you're in a, you're in a very bad place because that leads to abuse. That leads to abuse of the authority. A while back, um, a, young, a pa- young pastor in this area, he called me up and he said, uh, I, get these, I get these backhanded compliments all the time. He said, you're the old guy in the neighborhood and I was wondering if I could talk to you. I was like, thanks um, for that. Uh, so we sat down and talked about pastoring and all this kind of, and I told him, I said, I said, here's the danger. Here's the danger that can happen in our lives as pastors. 
is that you have some authority as a pastor. You have some authority. You have pressure as a pastor. There's pressure involved with being a pastor. And if you mix in pride, you, you have a dangerous mix. You have a really dangerous mix. Because how you exercise your authority and how you react to pressure will be changed by your pride. And you can do terrible things when you do that. I have done terrible things with that dangerous mix. It's a bad combination. There are times in your life where you will struggle with anger. Every person here will. Anger may be a friendship that is having a problem, maybe a relationship at work, maybe at home. And the, and the problem is you can go two ways. It can be this explosive anger that just blows up and, and, and it's like a hand grenade, just blows everything up around it. Or it can be this cold, dark anger that's quiet and you give people the silent treatment or you treat them just a little different just to let them know. How we deal with anger is different for all of us. I saw recently there's an, there's an indie film out that I thought was very interesting. It's, it's called Peanut Butter Falcon. It probably won't grab you with that name, but it's called Peanut Butter Falcon. And it's kind of an on-the-road movie, a Huck, you know, Huck Finn type thing. Uh, um, this fisherman from the Outer Banks, it's set in the Outer Banks. And, and this, this young man with Down syndrome who's escaped from a place, and, and they, they find each other, and they go on the road together, in a sense. And this young man wants to become a professional wrestler, He's seen some videos, you know, and he wants to become a professional wrestler. They go to where someone can help him with that. They decide to do something nice for him. They decide to stage a match for him with a whole bunch of people there. And if you're thought about going, I'm giving it away right now. Um, and, and, and so the guy that he's wrestling with isn't going by the script He's actually trying to hurt him. He's gotten mad at him, and so he starts calling him the names that people call people with Down syndrome, and he starts physically hurting him. And so they're saying, okay, we're going to cancel the match. And the, the young man, no, no, you know, and he still wants to fight him, and he's getting beat up. And so his friend is going, you got to get angry. you got to get angry. Say the most hateful thing you can think of. And he looks at him, and he goes, you're not invited to my birthday party. That was the extent of his anger, but he was furious. You see, how we express it is different for every one of us. When my kids were little, one time one of my daughters, my son was being a bum about this. We didn't let our kids say butt, so they had to say bum. So my son was being a bum, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> and they were playing with Legos, and all of a sudden she goes, I hope you step on a Lego. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, burn, that's a tough one right there, boy. That's going to hurt. We express our anger in the way each, each of us is different. So for some of us, we put on the silent treatment. For some of us, it's an explosion. But it's anger that's not being dealt with. And this is what we have with Haman. And as people who proclaim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we have to deal with it. We have to repent. It doesn't have to be this way for us. Even if it's been in your family for generations, you can break the cycle. You don't have to be bound by it. Because Jesus says there's another way. There's another way. Jesus had ultimate power and he had ultimate humility at the same time. And he tells us in different times in the Gospels that this at some level is evil. 
And we see this in Haman at some level. This is satanic. He wants to destroy all of God's people. All right. Then uh, we have the next point here. This thing jumped on me, and I lost it. Okay. Uh, In verse 7... It says, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day in a month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So what's going on here? This is uh, on your sheet there. It's this destruction that's fueled by anger. Haman is using a form of sorcery. He's using, playing a game that was pretty common back then with dice, and uh, it could be used to get the spirits to get involved and to direct and guide to make, a, to make a big decision. So he's asking, what's the best, he's asking, what's the best day to kill all the Jews? And the dice fall to a certain day. And then Haman said to King Xerxes, there, there is certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. All right. So we see now how Haman is re- he's reasoning with Xerxes. He tells him, and there's a little bit of truth here. He says, these people are everywhere. They're all over the place. And you see, that's true. But you see the hint that that could be bad. Right? And then he says they have different customs, and they keep themselves separate. So now he's pushing it. He's saying they're different. They're not like us. And then finally he says... They do not obey the king's laws. Now, there's the lie. He started with some truth, and he weaved into finally it's a lie. Because as far as we know, the Jews obeyed the laws just as much as anybody else. There was no problem there. But he makes this sound like a bad thing. And his conclusion there, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now, that word interest is is a very interesting word. It's a word that has this idea of... of, uh, of, of something that's very smooth, or a number of things that are all very much alike, right? It's all equal. And what is he saying? Well, what happens in a kingdom? What do they want? They want all the people of the kingdom to become like each other so that they hang together as a, as, as a kingdom. That's what they tried. That's all, why so often kings, when they conquered a place, they take everybody with them and deposit them in another place to make them begin to live like those people. So they all were the same. And what is he saying? These people aren't assimilating. They aren't assimilating, king. And that's dangerous. And they're everywhere. That is dangerous for your kingdom. These people are actually harming your kingdom by the way they behave, and they stand out. They're opposing you. Now, there's some obvious applications to our day with this. As Christians, we will, by necessity, sometimes stand out. It will happen. We will attract attention because of our beliefs. The early Christians attracted an enormous amount of persecution. Why? Well, their social code and their moral code was different from people around them. They believed everybody was equal in the eyes of God. They didn't believe there were racial differences. They didn't believe there were gender differences. They didn't believe there were social differences. They didn't believe in religious differences. They said, we're all, we're all made in the image of God. We're all equal. We're all equal. And they were different, and they were persecuted for it. We have the documentation on that. I mean, we know about the persecutions, but we know about why the persecutions happened. We've seen, there's a, there's a guy named Pliny the Younger. There, there's a, there's a, a Caesar named Domitian, and they detailed 
why they were persecuting, why these Jews, these Christians, I mean, should be persecuted. Pliny the Younger said, they go around and help everybody, not even their own people. They're messing the whole system up. They're too gracious. They believe in marital fidelity. This is not us. Pliny the Younger is writing to Caesar and saying, they're not like us. He could be Haman. They're not like us. They're all, these Christians are all over the place. They're not like us. They're turning the world upside down because they welcome in the poor. They welcome in the disadvantaged. They welcome in aliens. They they let strangers into their churches. It's just not like us. So what does Haman say? He says, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So what happens? He says, hey, let's make this decree. I found the perfect date. And here we see Xerxes again. He's easily manipulated. He's mercurial. He's all over the place. He's the worst kind of leader. I mean, this is a perfect example of why we need to pray for those who are in authority over us. We need to pray for wisdom. We need to pray for integrity. We need to pray for honesty. We need to pray that God, the God of justice, would bring justice. We need to be praying that. So the couriers are sent and the message is spread. You can kill all the Jews and you can take their stuff. In verse 15, it says, the couriers went out and spurred. And spurred on by the king's command, the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. They were bewildered. There was this confusion. There was this this idea of a sense of despair. Even for people, evidently, who aren't even Jews, they're like, what is going on here? What has happened? These circumstances are terrible. So it's been nine years since chapter 1 the beginning of chapter 1. And the Jews are asking right now, is God working? Will God save his people? But there's one ray of hope. It's an interesting thing. Haman knows nothing about this. The day he set for the destruction of the Jews is Passover Eve. The day before God miraculously saved his people at the Passover time in Egypt. So God is working. Already we see a glimmer of hope. Now we know this story. If you've read it, if you're familiar with it, you kind of know the story. But if you didn't know the story, think about where you'd be. Think about where they are right now. It's all over. The date is almost exactly a year away. In one year, everyone will be given license to kill us and take our stuff. How can we be saved? All these things, these circumstances, it seems hopeless. But God has this perfect timing that's going on. And we're going to see this as we move through the book. Because God is the God of timing. You know, we've talked about this once or twice. There, there, there are the Bible talks about there are these, there's two words for time. There's chronos, which is this flow of time that just linearly, it's linear and it just goes and goes and goes. And then there's the word, it's a beautiful Greek word, kairos. In fact, uh, Thomas is involved with a ministry to prisoners, the kairos ministry. And this word kairos means there are certain times that are full of potential for something to happen for God. Times that are full of this possibility of something great. Kairos moments. 
And when the time was right and when the time was full, the Bible tells us God sent his son Jesus. He sent his son Jesus. Just like with Xerxes, a message is sent. But it's the opposite message of Xerxes. It's a message of freedom and forgiveness. It's the opposite king as Xerxes because we have, a, we have a king here who says, I'm going to die for my people. I'm going to die for the sake of my people. Why? Because I love them. I don't use them like Xerxes. I love them. I don't oppress them. I don't manipulate them. I don't exploit them. I love them. And when the time was right, God sent his son for us, for you and for me. So we're at the end of chapter 3. Seems pretty bleak. Seems like they're one year from total genocide. And we get to see what is God doing behind the scenes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. We pray, Lord, that as your children, we would learn. We would learn to look past the circumstances and to see what you are doing. To wait on you to hope and hold on, to have courage in the darkest of times, knowing that you are working. Help us to trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering. And if you are a guest here, we don't expect you to give. We're not asking you to give. This is what our regular tenders and our members...